History. History. Through the eyes of those who lived it. This is Hometown Heroes. Presented on the air and online by Provident Payments. Proudly honoring the men and women whose service and sacrifice have secured our freedom. Now, the host of Hometown Heroes, Paul Leffler. Welcome to another edition of Hometown Heroes, the program that reminds you no matter where you live in this great country of ours, no matter how big or how small your hometown might be, there are stories there that should not go untold. What we've discovered is that they don't have to go untold as long as we're willing to take a few very simple steps. First, take the initiative to ask a few questions and then listen patiently and intently as memories from long, long ago take on new meaning in the here and now. Our goal has always been to honor our veterans for their service and their sacrifice. We want to preserve their stories so the rest of us never forget the price that's been paid for our freedom. And in that process, not only are we educated, not only are we entertained, but so often we find ourselves inspired by these stories from our greatest generation. That generation, of course, is dwindling by the day, which means this week, as we mark the 79th anniversary of the Battle of Iwo Jima, there are very, very few survivors still with us who can tell the story. Fortunately, we've talked to dozens over the years on Hometown Heroes who experienced that historic fight firsthand, and we're going to build a mosaic from some of their snapshots today. So many of the Marines tasked with what intelligence estimates suggested would be a three-day battle to capture eight square miles of volcanic territory in the Pacific were teenagers, including a 19-year-old named Ted Brodalski. I always kid the people that are my friends in the Navy that I'm mad at the Navy because when I was in the Marine Corps, they told me I'd end up in the islands with palm trees, hula hula girls, and I get on this boat. And we get to this island, and they say, okay, you guys need to get off here. This is where your destination is. And by the way, this is Iwo Jima. There's 20,000 Japanese who want to kill you, and they're shooting at you. I, I, I was with the 4th Marine Division Command Post Air Liaison Section. We were aboard ship on the initial landing. Uh, the, the general and the staff didn't go to ashore till D plus four, and I stayed where the command post was right below Surbachi, because when they took Surbachi, that was the fourth day. Up in that time, uh, the Japanese were up on Surbachi in the caves and everywhere, and for the longest time, no matter where you were, uh, with their tunneling set up, you didn't know whether they were going to show up behind you or anywhere, and so we were constantly concerned with the snipers. When we first landed, they had the whole island set up with trajectory. Their mortars and their artillery, they had the whole uh, island pinpointed. So when they saw a bunch of troops together, they just went to their maps, took their uh, mortars, and boom, you they got right to the site. So during the whole island situation, uh, we, we had uh, 6,800 dead, 30,000 casualties, so you know that uh, whenever they, they sent artillery or mortar or snipers, uh, someone was going to go. Well, and something tells me that uh, some of those artillery shells ended up somewhere close to you at some point. Uh, you know, uh, people say, well, how did you get away without w w wounded or killed? And I tell them, you know, when that mortar came in, it landed five, ten feet in front of me. The next one landed behind me. The next one to the to the left, one next. And, and that guy upstairs said it's, it wasn't my time. 
That's the only thing you can see. There was no hiding. That was a volcanic ash. You couldn't dig down more than 12 inches without it coming back in. Luckily, I, uh, all us guys were slim and young, so if you dug down 12 inches, that was to make sure none of your body was showing up <laughs> for them to shoot at. And then later on when we, we had the command post, we had sandbags and, and stuff. The The whole time uh, until we ended up at the end of the island, uh, there was always activity going on and... Uh, the saddest part is when you saw the bodies coming back in, in the cemeteries on the beach. They, they, they just dug as low as they could, lined up the bodies and covered them over. And then later on, they extracted them to a, a different area. The, the one thing that, that uh, uh, when I saw the flag of our fathers, do you remember seeing that movie? We took about 30 young Marines to see the movie. I had never been to a surround theater with uh, with because I we never went to the theater, and I'm sitting there and I, and and as the mortars and and the artillery's coming in, you swear it's going to land right on top of you. The shooting and the uh, the volume of of the thing. So when we got out, one of the young Marines says, "Was that realistic?" I says, "Everything but the smell." Now you know. When we went and and, and got a, had to get them out of the caves, we used flamethrowers. Probably the worst smell that, that that they'll ever smell in your life is burning flesh, and and we had burning flesh all over the place. And so you can think of all the other things that have happened, and that one thing that stands out that that thankfully you won't replicate in in life. And all I can say is that uh, the good Lord. Uh, was with me. And this special Iwo Jima episode would not be complete without Ted Brodalski's memory of that famous flag atop Mount Suribachi. We were uh, on the deck. We were waiting to go ashore. And when the flag went up, we were out, out on the deck and we saw the flag go up. You heard a big hurrah from the island. There was enough noise to move the island, but it didn't it defer the Japanese. They didn't stop. So right after the flag went up, the general decided it's time to move the command post forward. So we went in right after the f flag went up on the uh, D plus four. That was really your cue to land on Iwo Jima. Right. It was our cue. And, and it was interesting because the, the colonel said uh, to me, he said, uh, by the way, he says, uh, we have a jeep for the command post and you're the driver. And I saw that going on at the beach. Everything moving was getting killed. And, and I'm thinking, I'm going to be a Jeep driver. <laughs> but I, the, we, we never used a Jeep. But that would might have been interesting because the way it was set up with the two fields and stuff and the way everything was done. You know, the, the thing that impressed me when I got ashore, you know, they had, they had the concrete bunkers. Then they had the underground setting where they were went the whole island, tunnels, okay? We bombed that thing for 90 days. You go and look at the, at the, at the pillboxes, and you see a little dent about a six or eight inches off the concrete. Before we went in, the Navy battleships shelled that place for 30 days. We thought when we got there, there's nothing going to be there. There's no, no vegetation or anything else, yeah, but they were underground, and they were up in on Sirbachi in the tunnels and stuff. And the minute the guys start landing, they they just come out of their holes, and uh, we had a full force fight. 
In the Japanese general, there was 20,000 Japanese on the island. And the Japanese general was known to have said to him, you will fight till you die. In the meantime, kill as many Marines as you can. You're not going to go back home. So, you know, that's, that's the kamikaze type deal on the airplanes. They fought till they, they were, were killed. And there was just a few hundred that were in the caves that came out. Uh, but they, they kept fighting until it was over. Well, and I've got to ask you, and you mentioned the shells landing five feet in front of you or five feet behind you, but never on top of you, never where you caught any shrapnel. And you felt that God was looking out for you. Do you remember one specific day or one specific experience, whether it was that or something else that felt to you like the closest call or put the biggest scare into you as a still a teenager in 1945? The first night that we were ashore, remember now, there, all the supplies are coming on shore. Ammunition is loaded. There's stacks and stacks of ammunition on the beach. Well, the first night about eight, uh, just after dark, the Japanese hit the dump. They hit one of the dumps. You've heard of star shells. That's the that's the shells that go up in the they, they come down and parachute lay light, light up. Well, that place was lit all night long from the shells. Well, by God, nobody was moving. You, you knew damn well that if you moved and and there was someone out there, a sniper or, or so that was that was the one night that kind of got my attention that uh, if the if we had been closer to the bomb dump, everything in the area was blown up. I remember that well, and, and that's another thing that just being at the right place at the right time caused my survival. Amen. Well, another thing that, that I have to ask you, because anytime I talk to someone who was at Iwo Jima, you have to hear about a, a Suribachi story and, and also the image. The original sculpture in Washington, D.C., near Arlington National Cemetery, the Marine Corps Memorial there, is, is so striking as it sits larger than life. When you see that, when you're just sitting here in your chair and you look over and you see that with the red, white, and blue sticking up above those soldiers, what does that mean to you? What, what's the significance of that image to you? When we saw the flag go up, we were far away. We didn't see the, the people. But when we saw the flag go up, we thought we had won the island. So that gave everybody that extra a little push saying, wow, we've captured the island. Well, we, we got Surbachi, which was a bunch of caves and stuff, and we cleaned that up. But then the rest of the island is like a pork chop. The The other two or three miles uh, was where all the Japanese were in caves. And so as as the troops were going forward, you, you, you think that you're, you're cleaning them out. In the meantime, they come in back. And one of the things I remember is the first fighter squadron that landed, Air Force Night Fighter Squadron. And they landed on, on, on the first airfield. The pilots were in their, in their tents uh, the first night. Japanese come out of their caves and stuff and killed a dozen of them. So you were never, never safe. And they would crawl around all over the place. The way they, they hid the entrances to the, to the uh, tunnels, you never knew when they could come up and behind you. They they had to in the openings to the to the ones that the tunnels. They'd throw in the satchel charges, then they'd use the flamethrowers to get everybody away. But ironic, right below the tunnels was the raceway. They even had a hospital underground and all the ammunition, all everything, because they lived underground. So that the the flag gave us a, a false sense of 
having uh, gotten to the end, and it was, uh, you know, that's D plus four, and we went on till the end of the month. The battle went a lot longer than the estimates were. So when you see it, and you see the quote in, in Washington, D.C., at that Marine Corps Memorial, the quote on the side of it from Admiral Nimitz that says, uh, among the Marines in the Pacific War, uncommon valor was a common virtue. What does that mean to you, and does that sound like what you saw and experienced as one of those Marines? The Marines lived by that creed. The Marines, since its inception, fought in every war and every conflict throughout the world. And the reason for the Marine Corps is a Marine will do his duty. There's never a hesitation. If you're, you're, the orders are to move forward, charge, and the firing is going around you, you're going to do what you have to do. The people we had on that island just kept doing their job, and that's why uh, we were able to finally uh, shut down the island. But that would come at a very heavy cost. More than 6,800 Americans gave their lives at Iwo Jima. Nearly 20,000 more were wounded. We're going to hear from some of the wounded before we're done, but it wasn't just Marines there 79 years ago. We'll hear from veterans from other branches of service, too, when this special episode of Hometown Heroes comes right back after this. Hey, do you ever have those moments where you realize you've been settling for less than the best for way too long? Sometimes we just accept the status quo without looking around for better ways to do things. And I got to tell you, when it comes to your money, I think I've found a better way with EECU. Just take a look at myeecu.org and I think you'll see why. EECU is not a bank. It's a not-for-profit credit union that's all about taking care of you, the member. That's one of the reasons EECU just keeps growing and growing. Over 350,000 members now in 12 different California counties and access to more than 30,000 co-op ATMs and free online and mobile banking. But what I love most is how EECU always goes above and beyond to serve the community. A decade ago, the leadership and generosity of EECU helped establish Central Valley Honor Flight. By the end of this year, more than 1,800 veterans will have seen their memorials in Washington, D.C. for free. And that's just one example of the community involvement that EECU takes oh so seriously. Pick up the phone and become a member today. 1-800-538-3328. That's 1-800-538-3328. Proudly presented by Provident Payments, this is Hometown Heroes. Celebrating everyday Americans who answer the call of duty. Welcome back to Hometown Heroes and a special episode commemorating the 79th anniversary of the battle for Iwo Jima. I promised we'd hear from veterans from other branches of service and we'll start with one that's often overlooked. The U.S. Coast Guard. It was as a Coast Guardsman that Clyde McCulley had taken men ashore on D-Day in Normandy in his LCVP, and he did the same eight months later and half a world away at Iwo Jima, operating from the attack transport USS Bayfield. My task there was primarily uh, retrieving uh, casualties and uh, returning them to either one of the hospital vessels or our ship for uh, attention. Uh, the one of the disappointments, of course, is that you go in for a certain number of casualties and you find out that only a very few of them still had life uh, st with them. 
Uh, and for a good period of time, there, the boat that uh, I had was used as a refueling station for the Amtraks that went in. The, uh, the Marines uh, used those quite a bit at Iwo Jima. It was a, an operation that just involved a tremendous amount of back and forth of uh, vessels such as the Amtraks and the LCVPs to take ashore what really was needed. And of course, the, the beach was very difficult to deal with because it was a, a type of volcanic ash that was very hard to gain traction on for some of the, some of the vehicles that were to be uh, placed there. One uh, afternoon when I went in to collect the uh, what casualties we could find, it was so quiet. Nothing was happening. There was no uh, mortar fire or any small arms fire that was coming into the beach at all. And sometimes I think that's worse than, than dodging because you have a feeling they're just taking more careful aim. <laughs> that was Coast Guard veteran Clyde McCulley. Among the Army personnel on Iwo Jima at the end of the action there was the 725th Medical Sanitation Company, a segregated unit of African-American soldiers tasked at times with cleaning up the carnage of battle. Fitzalbert Marius would go on to become a pioneering heart surgeon, but 76 years ago, his outlook, like so many others on Iwo Jima, could only handle one day at a time. You have a war attitude that everybody is subject to soon death, including you. That's part of your everyday situation. You wake up, the more you protect yourself and the more you do right, the more potential you have of continuing another day. And you mentioned that your duties at times included burying the dead. What was that like for you? How, how difficult was that? How challenging was that? That was extremely challenging because now you are not talking about burying one or two people. You are talking about getting one of them big ditch diggers and digging out a big trench and then shoving in 100, 200, 300, 1,000 people and then covering them over. Is that American? Is that Japanese? Is that both? Both, depending on the situation. Now, with the Japanese, you don't worry about IDs and stuff like that, but with the Americans, you make sure you got the, the dog tags off of them so, you know, had identities. But you bearing human beings with a bulldozer ain't fun. But you do develop a way of handling it so that you can survive, because you have to have an attitude of survival. Well, that is certainly the kind of mindset that enabled a Navy man from Michigan, Wally Walling, to survive the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor more than three years earlier. And at this time, 79 years ago, he was just off of Iwo Jima, watching things unfold from aboard ship. And it's the first time that we saw the P-51 Mustangs. Mm -hmm. In the afternoon, here comes an awful roar of planes coming towards us about... 50 or 60 feet off in the water. You can't see them. But you can hear them. You can hear them. And all at once we look out there, man, here they're coming. Well, hell, we're going for sure. And then they come by us and come up and make the rolls, and it's a P-51 Mustangs. Mm -hmm. See, the airstrip is secured. That's the first time that I saw the P-51 Mustang. Boy, I thought that was the hottest thing. Well, it was up to the P-38 Lockheed Lightning. And I'm just imagining, as you describe that moment, that you hear these planes coming. You think you're about to die, and then you see that they're American <laughs> planes. So it goes from the worst to the best in a split second, huh? In a split second, yeah. 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 You uh, see, I want to tell another story. Sergeant Bassalone 
You know who he is. One of the heroes of Iwo Jima. He is a hero of Iwo Jima, but he was the first medal of honor at Guadalcanal. Because when the battle stopped in the morning at Guadalcanal, he had 32 dead in front of his pillbox. His gun is gone. His ammunition man is dead. He's the only one alive. Well, then we was able to hold and then they took him back to the States and made a poster boy out of him. Right. He was the first Medal of Honor winner of the Marines in the Pacific War. Mm-hmm. Now, he was back there over a year or so, and he sold more bonds than any other man alive. All the war bonds. He was war the bonds. example that they used to but sell But all war the bonds. time, yeah. he wanted to go back right. to his men. So as we was coming, the squadron of the ships is going to Iwo Jima. We picked him up at Guam, and he happened to come aboard my ship. So he was with us in the chief's quarters on this trip. So I got to know him real well on that little short trip. At Iwo Jima, we put him with his unit. He was on the third wave. The first two are dead. The men on the first two waves are dead or wounded. And when he came in with his, he saw that ahead of him and hollered to his men, you're going to die if you don't run across that beach. Get across that beach. Don't stop. Do anything you can to get across. He hit him on the head. He called him bad names, everything, just to keep motivated to get him off there. Him and another sergeant. And he got killed 500 yards in there right next to the airstrip. I knew that young man. He was a wonderful young man, Sergeant Bassalone. So at Iwo Jima, then they gave him the Navy Cross. Those kids that followed him off in that, that boat that day would have followed him anywhere. Mm-hmm. Sounds yeah. like you were ready to. Well, I would have. <laughs> See, I'm only laying off about 400 yards mm-hmm. off the beach, and I'm taking back the casualties from that beach. That's why I had all of them aboard. I'm the first ship that took back the casualties at Iwo Jima. So the... The Higgins boats, the LCVPs, would go from your ship to the shore to take troops in. They would also bring the casualties back. If they could. Not every boat could take them back. Right. Because they're under fire. But there was a day there at Iwo where you guys received over 400 casualties back on your ship? I had, by 10 o'clock in the morning, on the the morning of the invasion, I had 400 back aboard. Wow. What kind of shape are these guys in? They're either dead or just... Any kind. You see, Mount Sarabachi was three-quarters of a mile away. And the whole side of that mountain it faces the beach. And so over time of 20 years of them fortifying, they knew every foot of that beach. They had to calibrate it from every one of those beach hole, those holes up in that mountain. All the caves and tunnels in Sarabachi. That's yeah. right. So all they had to do was wait so many troops and kill them. And that was what was happening the day of the raid. And you're watching this. I'm watching. See, I, on the bridge, you got the big glasses. Yeah. And then afterwards, of course, I watched the flags go up on Iwo Jima. And you said it right. You said flags, not flag. So you saw the first flag go up, and you saw it replaced by a second larger flag. Did that mean something to you at the time while you're looking oh from your God. ship? Oh, my God. You know... Of course, we don't know how far on shore that the Marines have got. But when we see, we're making progress because now we've chopped off the thing that's given us so much damage. Mm-hmm. And right ahead of us was the little boat basin, and uh, our tanks in those days are small stuff. So. 
So we're watching the advance. It took them seven days and only a few hundred yards that they could get to that point. Mm-hmm. Because, man, those tanks would start up and go a few yards and blow bottom side up. It was so fortified that those men, I don't know how in the world they ever, ever advanced on Iwo Jima. I get the sense, and I could be wrong, but just kind of reading between the lines here as I listen to you, it almost sounds like watching the Marines on Iwo Jima was more difficult for you than what you saw December 7th. Right. You see, I tell everybody, December 7th was bad, and we lost up to 3,000 people, civilians and military personnel. But every island in the Pacific, we lost more than that. Why don't we think more of these islands where these kids died than just Pearl Harbor all the time? But Pearl Harbor had to get us in the war. Yeah. And and Pearl Harbor, you didn't know it was coming. No. But Iwo Jima, these are guys who have been on your ship that oh. you're watching go to shore, and then you're watching them get killed moments later Yeah. as you watch helplessly through those glasses, right? Yeah. Do I have it right? Yeah. And there's the story. You picked up a light some Morse code signals of a boat coming back to your ship? That was opening day at Iwo Jima. That was one of those small landing crafts about 25, 30 feet long that had the big steel con in the center of it. Uh-huh. Just all at once. Here's a erratic lights flashing at me at our ship. And so I hollered to the captain below that this ship was trying to get home. He says, see, see if he can find out what he wants. He finally got him to me that he wanted to come aboard because his craft is sinking. I hollered at the captain, he said, get him aboard. So the guy came up there to me, and one man is hanging over the side dead. The other one, the one who was sending me the message, has got his other arm blew off. The armor that he uses for signaling, the left one is one he's sending the message to me, and he can't hardly send it. So his right arm was blown off on Iwo Jima, the other guys on this boat are dead, and he's using his left arm right. to signal you while his boat is sinking. And so he comes along, they throw the lines on the boat, and they rush down there and take off everybody, and the boat sinks right beside us, right there. Wow. Out of how many people? Well, there were six that they took off that was dead. There's only six or eight uh, on any of those small boats like that. They're just a gunnery boat. And I know you're not looking for attention on that, and, and you're not bragging. But if you hadn't responded to his, to his messaging and taken action, he would have died. Yeah, he'd have died. You he'd saved his died. life. Well, I might have, but I just happened to see him, and we're the nearest ship. And I'm sure that if he'd have come close to anybody, they would have took him. So now we've heard from Army, Navy, Coast Guard. We'll hear from a couple of Purple Heart Marines before we're done. But the whole premise for taking Iwo Jima was to have a landing spot for Army Air Corps bombers on their way back from Japan. Early in the battle, a bomber pilot named Jesse Dudley was given an unarmed B-24 and told to fly General Mickey Moore, leader of the 7th Fighter Command, to Iwo. We landed there at D-plus-3. The Japanese were still fighting the Marines, and uh, we got their attention when I landed with the the B-24. I guess they hadn't seen one that close up before, but the 51s uh, 
all landed ahead of me. We had a very uneventful flight. It took a few days to get there, but no problems whatsoever. No problems whatsoever, but from what I hear, there were actually bullets flying across the runway when you put that B-24 down. Absolutely, yes, it sure was. <laughs> well, yeah. we got to question your, your definition of uneventful here. That's well, not... I, you know, I think they were awed by the side of the airplane, and they just looked like they were kind of standing there with their jaws hanging. <laughs> and, of course, I didn't stay very long. I, the runway was kind of short and temporary, and... And I ran off the end of it with the B-24, but it was nice and solid. It wasn't sand like most of the island. Made a quick turnaround and got back up to safety. So you ran off the end of the runway. You said that very matter-of-factly. That, that sounds like that could be potentially hairy to me. Well, it was, <laughs> it was mostly uh, hard-packed uh, dirt or, or whatever it was. Anyhow, the, I was a little surprised, too, that made a quick turnaround right there off the end of the runway and back. All the 51s that landed safely ahead of me, so... Well, I think it's safe to say it's probably a lot easier to land a P-51 there than a B-24. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. I'm sure you're focused on just getting that plane down and accomplishing your mission, but as you were flying in, did you see anything that sticks with you today as far as the scene you were looking at and what was happening on that small volcanic island? Zerbachi. That was going to be home to me. We had our headquarters and our living quarters right at the base of Siribachi, which was still in the hands of the Japanese. It wasn't secured for quite some time after we got there. They had booby traps all over the island, like new lumber stacked up, and if you if had tried to take it, it would have blown up, you know, things like that. And so you were there just three days after that invasion started, and that's, and I that's about how long the, the military expected it to last, but it lasted a lot longer than that. It sure did, yes. yes. The Marines were quite surprised at, on the landing, yes. Well, and I imagine you saw quite a bit, even though your duties were not the same as what the Marines were doing. You probably experienced and witnessed uh, some, some pretty vivid experiences there. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, you know, we could see uh, Sarabachi. It was <laughs> right outside our... Our tent, as a matter of fact, uh, we were also worried about nighttime. We were digging, trying to dig under our cots, but the sand was uh, so, I can't think of the word. In other words, it kept filling up the, the hole that we were digging. We did have some, some of our pilots that were killed during the night. They just, Japanese sneaked into the tent and slit their throat. So it uh, was quite uh, discomforting to live there. 6,800 Americans gave their lives in the battle for Iwo Jima, which was still in its first week at this time 79 years ago. More than 19,000 more were wounded. And we're going to hear from two of those Purple Heart Marines when Hometown Heroes comes right back after this. When times get tough and budgets get tight, a lot of businesses start slashing their marketing budgets, which all too often turns into a costly mistake. Instead, what if you could customize that investment to zero in on your target audience with surgical precision? And why am I saying what if? Because I already know you can with search strategy marketing. It's not about how much you spend, it's about the strategy behind it. And Search Strategy Marketing is ready to prove it to you with a free, no-obligation assessment of your current efforts. Learn how to outrank your competition with a free, customized action plan just for Hometown Heroes listeners. Just go to HometownHeroesRadio.com and click on that light bulb logo for Search Strategy Marketing. It doesn't matter what your business is, Search Strategy Marketing can lead you to the best way to connect with your customers. 
So look for that light bulb logo today at hometownheroesradio.com and plug into the power that can take your business to the next level. Honoring veterans from sea to shining sea, you're listening to Hometown Heroes with Paul Leffler. Brought to you by this local station and its sponsors and presented everywhere, on the air and online by Provident Payments, one of the fastest growing payment consultants in America. Connect today at ProvidentPayments.com. Welcome back to Hometown Heroes and a special focus this week on Iwo Jima, the battle memorialized by perhaps the most famous photograph of all time and a larger-than-life statue in our nation's capital that recreates it. At this time 79 years ago, that flag had just been placed atop Mount Suribachi, but the battle was far from over. We've met quite a few Marines over the years who were wounded on that small volcanic island, and you're going to hear from two of them before we conclude the program today. Jesse Arney did his fighting in a tank on Iwo, and he found out firsthand how problematic that volcanic sand could be. Well, you had to be real careful, because if you turn too sharp, you'd put that work at sand up and under the tracks and then it'd get uh, stretch out to, to be too tight and bust to break the track. So we'd go straight out. They went straight out after we got the tank out and went straight out till we get up far we could kind of make a slow turn. This may seem like a silly question but I think it probably gives us some perspective. What were your sleeping arrangements on Iwo Jima? On Iwo Jima I slept mostly in the tank. So I was, you know you could you could dig down in about ten inches and put your canned beans and stuff like that down in there, and it'd heat it for you. But anyway, uh, and sleep to sleep out, I slept under the tank a lot of times, and that's what you know to get away from, away from it because the heat in the tank. So I may be jumping a little ahead, but uh, on Guam, this was on Guam. They had a Benzai attack. A banzai, you know what a banzai attack is. Well, we had our tanks all lined up there, you know. And I had been sleeping under the tank because it was hot. So two infantry guys come up and asked if they could sleep under our tank. And so I said, yeah, sure, you. I said, I'll sleep inside. So they did. Well, the next morning they was dead. They had that banzai attack, and, and they went through there. And, and some of them got through, and they killed those two guys. If they hadn't tucked that, I'd have been under there. So the Lord, he works in mysterious ways. Yeah. So the Japanese came in in the night. Well, they, they come, they made a run, you know. It's like, you see in the movie, where just like a wave of coming out. That's just the way they was doing. Wave, wave after wave. And we just couldn't cut them down fast enough. Not lots of them. So what they did, they got killed. Yeah, that was, I was gone. Well, and, you know, that makes me wonder how... Because you're a young man. I mean, at this point, that's uh, 1944. So you're 21 years old, and here these guys died, and you know it could have been you. How do you process that in your mind? I don't. I just think the good Lord, the good Lord didn't want me to go. I think myself, I think, and I might be wrong, I think we got to, I think the Lord allows us so much time, but he can shorten it or he can lengthen it out, and I think he decided to let me go a little longer. How else would I get to be 100? That's right. <laughs> Did you get desensitized to 
the guys around you being wounded or killed? It bothered you, but you couldn't let it. You couldn't let it stop you. You just had to keep on do, doing your thing, because everybody depended on everybody. And I was one of the best gutters that they had. And there's another one, and another outfit was pretty. He was good too, but we were the best gunners they had. I, I usually hit what I shot at. But they're shooting at you too. Oh yeah, but that's all right. And you know we we're talking about Iwo Jima and. You say the words Iwo Jima, and the first thing that comes to people's mind is that flag going up atop Mount Suribachi. I've talked to a lot of guys who say they saw, there were two flags, first flag and second flag, but I've talked to a lot of guys who say they saw one or the other. Do you remember seeing that? I was aboard the hospital ship. Yeah, if I remember right, I was aboard the hospital ship. Uh, they put that up on my birthday, February the 23rd. I was aboard the hospital ship, and uh, when our tank got blown up, it killed the driver. Let me back you up there a little bit. I know you ran over a, a landmine, but tell me what you guys were doing that day. What led up to that moment? And maybe walk me through that entire sequence. Well, we was moving up to the front, getting up in the front. And we was making a charge. We was getting ready to cross the airstrip. Well, they'd planted that, whatever it was, and, and we hit it, run up on it. So the gunner... The loader and the tank commander got out of the tank, and the driver and the driver was dead. The assistant driver was, was in bad, bad shape, and I was out cold and had a gash on my chin. Uh, and they left. They didn't even check to see if I was dead. So, sorry for all the questions. I just, I'm trying to get the picture in my mind. So you guys, you're crawling along in this tank trying to move up to the front, and you're riding in the turret? Yes. But it's closed. So the turret's closed, but you're up near the top. Gun, yeah, uh -huh. yeah. Did you feel the explosion? Yeah, and I got, I got knocked out. To see the guys, the guys down below, they are more dangerous or something like that than we are, because we're all kind of above that. Uh, when it did that, I got this, I guess, from being, being, being knocked around in the turret, and I had my leather tank helmet on, but I don't know what happened. Did it wasn't on. And I got this big cash here. And uh, so these two guys got out and didn't even check to see if I was dead or not. I was just, I was just out. Yeah, he didn't like me anyway, and I didn't like him. The tank commander was second lieutenant. So this explosive device that you hit, did it flip the tank over? No, no. So it, it exploded and just... It hit the front, front part of it, uh -huh. hit right over where the driver was sitting. Well... You could hear, you could feel it, but it didn't. It didn't turn it over or nothing like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, it did blow a track off, and it did kill a guy. But us guys up in the turret, we had, we didn't have to worry about that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. because we had to worry about the people shooting us with a big gun. So the the tank commander and the loader get out. The drivers killed. The assistant drivers wounded and you've got a, a gash in your chin from getting rattled around, but you're unconscious. So when you finally came to, where were you? What were you seeing? What were you hearing? When I came to, I didn't take no stock of anything except that I was by myself in there. And so I just got out, and I went right out the top and dropped down beside those two tank commander and the loader. I dropped down right beside them. And another tank come up behind us 
and they dropped their, their escape hatch, and we slid in under the tank and got in it, and they took us back to the first aid station. Then I went aboard the hospital ship for till I got tired of it, and they big lobbed a big old shell over the bow of the ship, and I, t- I said to myself, I said, you can't swim three miles, so you better. So I told them, I said, I want to go back to my outfit. So they did, they sent me back, and you know, I don't remember, I don't remember going back, but I know I did, and then when I got ashore, I don't remember getting back to, uh, to my outfit, but I did, and uh, so my tank commander, he said, they put your tank, that's your gun on top of that tank, said, you got to man it. Well, he was a tank commander, but he didn't man it. He didn't get in it. But anyway, I said, okay, all you can say. And so I got in that, and we was going along there. And tanks are so big, they just run over stuff. So I seen this, this box sitting out there. It must have been about 12 by 12, 12 by 11. Anyway, a little square box about so big. And I thought, hmm. So I shot it. It blew, it blew a hole, and that's about almost big enough to hide that tank in it. <laughs> yeah. And our driver was headed right for it. So if you hadn't seen it and shot it, it might have killed all of you. It would have, it would have tore us up, yeah. yeah. While Jesse Arney was wounded in the first week of battle, an 18-year-old Marine named Carl Berghofer made it nearly a month into that five-week fight before earning his Purple Heart. About 10 o'clock in the morning, we were making an advance. Uh, he was the last up on, toward Katano Point, was the last holdout of the Japanese troops. We were advancing. It was a beautiful morning. We just, that morning, we had brought us out with the new sea rations. We enjoyed a good breakfast. Then they ordered us to move out, and we moved out to L Company and I Company combined. And we had about 20 men left of the two companies. And we made an advance across this. There was a series of ridges and flats and ridges and flats. We went from one ridge to the other. Finally, we came to a ridge, and we were blowing foxholes. Close as we went, dropping grenades at them. It wasn't a shot fired at us. We came up on this little ridge and we raised up and looked over it. And I, I was one of the first to look over it. It looked like a mushroom field. Japanese helmets. Wow. And all of them had a rifle pointed at me. And I raised my legs up and it took me 10 minutes to fall to the ground. And there was just a sheet of bullets came across the top of that ridge. The only way we could fire without getting hit was raise the rifles over his head and empty them in the general direction. And we threw all the grenades we had, and order finally came down for us to withdraw. And there was a flat area behind us and a big rock. So they started running one at a time, zigzagging and getting behind this rock. And I was about the fourth man through. The third man that went through, man, they really opened up on him, but he made it safely. And I, I made it about three jumps from that rock, and I got hit in the back of the head. I didn't know I got hit. I, of course, I was knocked out. And I came to, I was laying on my face, my nose hurt. I thought I'd pull it and hit my nose on a rock. Then I felt the blood, and one of the guys behind the rock said, Burkhofer, you're still moving? And I don't remember answering him, but he said, if you can make about three jumps, I can grab you and jump, uh, grab me and pull you behind this rock. So I laid there a minute and got my equilibrium back, and I got to my feet, and he uh, reached out and grabbed me. Wow. And I evacuated myself back to the base hospital. When I got back to the base hospital, I was treated by Dr. Raymond. 
and he was a surgeon from Santa Fe. How about that? I met with him several times after the war. So what was the extent of your injuries? I got a bullet hit in the back of my head. It was a glancing blow, but it pulled out a little piece of bone. He treated it and put a plate in it. It was supposed to be silver, but I don't think it was. <laughs> but it's since disappeared. It's been absorbed. So you get hit. It knocks you unconscious. Yeah. You're lying on the ground. Yeah. They still have a line of sight on you, right? Uh, I was was still on the ground, so they quit shooting at me. Right. Because you weren't moving, they stopped shooting. Yeah. If you had been moving, they probably would have shot you a few more times. Yeah, they would have shot me again. So it's a good thing you got knocked out. Yeah. Maybe saved your life. Yeah. And then you come to, and you don't know what happened. I didn't know what happened. I thought it was hit my head on a rock. Because when you fell, I'm sure you did hit something. I broke my nose, I know. Broke your nose. And I thought that was where the blood was coming from, but then I realized it was running down the side of my head. Head wounds bleed real bad. And so it it penetrated your helmet and the liner? Yeah, but through my helmet in one side and out the other. Knocked a little 25 caliber hole going in. Some of my friends brought the helmet back to me on Guam. When they came back. So when you're in the hospital recovering, they show up and give you the helmet? They, I was uh, in the hospital, and then I'd gone back to duty, and we were putting up the tents and everything for the Marines returning from Evo. I was on duty already, back on duty, when they came back. And so they gave you the helmet with two yeah, holes in it. Yeah, brought the helmet back, and I lost it somewhere in transit. Oh, man. Well, again, I'm still just fascinated by this circumstance. You're 18 years old. You're shot in the head. You're unconscious. You come to. You're trying to figure out what happened. Yeah. And you know that the Japanese can still shoot you at any moment. Yeah. And your buddy's telling you, try to move over here and I'll grab you. Yeah. He says, Burkhofer, can you hear me? And I, I, I must answer him somehow. He says, if you could make about two jumps, he says, I could grab you. So I laid there and clutched myself. I remember that. And then I got to my feet, and, or I don't remember where I got clear to my feet or not. Anyway, I got up where I could jump and made about two or three jumps, and he grabbed me and pulled me higher that rock. And the Japanese did, never did shoot at me. But you knew you were going to be exposing yourself to yeah. that fire by, by jumping over there. Yeah. How far do you think you had to go? About uh, six or eight feet. So then you're able to walk and move fine. You just have blood after coming I, out of your I head. After I got back there, they battered yeah. me up, and, and I evacuated myself. You had to be in pain. Now, those medical corps that I'm still using, they were great people. They were great people they were going in unarmed a lot of them were there were navy right medical corps attached to the marine unit i remember when they get a mass casualties they'd borrow morphine we carried a little pouch on our thing with a it had a, a roller bandage and a pack of dressing and a tube of morphine and a sofa right in each one of your little packs we carried on our belt on a cartridge belt He'd go around and borrow morphine from different people in the sofa because they didn't have enough in his pack to supply all the needs. And then we'd sit back and he'd, he'd get replenishments. So and uh, one of the duties I dreaded on Evo was stretcher-bearer duty. We'd pick up the wounded, sometimes the dead, and we'd carry them back to off the lines and back to a safe area sometimes clear down to the beach to the hospital ships and the hospital ships and they set up a tent field hospital on Evo. That's what I went to. But we'd carry and we'd have uh, two men to a stretcher. We'd put a battle on a stretcher and we'd run from one rock or foxhole to the next and dive in the hole. We were under fire at that time. 
and we get back out of the firing area, and then we carry them down to the beach, and on the return trip, we'd pick up water and gasoline from frame floors and extra ammunition and grenades and carry the loaded stretcher back <laughs> to the lines. <laughs> the stretcher duty was a hard duty, but I was on stretcher duty about two to three times a day. And then, so when you get hit and, and you get yourself back to the field hospital. Yeah. And you told the surgeon from Santa Fe. Yeah. Put the plate in your head. Did you think you might get to go home? I didn't think so at that time. But at uh, that time, they didn't know about subdural hematomas. Mm. Or you get a blow on one side of the head and the bruising is on the opposite side. And I had a... I suffered from severe headaches for months on my right, over my right temple. And uh, actually, they were bad enough where I passed out a couple of times. And I was finally, after they dropped the atom bombs on Japan, I was immediately back, back away to back to the States and given a medical discharge. Well, I've got to ask you, too. I mean, the situation where you're digging that spot out and you set the, the rock up on the edge and you said you were a tenth of an inch away from being yeah. killed there. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe an inch. Or, maybe an if inch. he had been an inch higher, he would have cut me in two. How about when you got hit? What do you think the margin was there for you surviving versus getting killed? Well, uh, looking backwards now on hindsight, I would say I had a 50-50 chance. Because if he's a little lower, he could... Sever your spinal cord without getting hit, and I had a good chance of being wounded. I mean, I'm just thinking if if a bullet hits the back of your head, yeah, it's not very far from ending it for you right there. Yeah, if he'd have been a, if he'd have led me just a speck more, he'd have caught me. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't realize how fast I was running. I guess that's it. Yeah. How often have you thought about that over the years? Because now you've lived another. I still have dreams about that. Every once in a while, I have dreams about that damn place. The men who were there never forgot it, and we shouldn't either. Seventy-nine years after the Battle of Iwo Jima, the uncommon valor displayed there as a common virtue represents the highest calling that a new generation of military men and women pursue today. Thanks so much for listening to Hometown Heroes. I'm Paul Leffler, reminding you again that freedom is not free. To let Paul know about a veteran in your life, visit hometownheroesradio.com and click on Suggest a Veteran. Today's program has been brought to you by Provident Payments. Give your business the edge only their personalized service can deliver at providentpayments.com.